0: Good morning. We have been um, on a journey as a church this past year through the book of Acts. Our journey began November the 8th, 2015. And here we are 46 weeks later seeing that journey finally come to a close. And along the way, one of the things we have seen along this journey is that the book of Acts really is a book... Of journeys. It chronicles the journey of the church as it was birthed in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, and then how it went out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and throughout the Roman Empire. We also saw how God used the Apostle Paul to take that mission forth through three missionary journeys chronicled throughout the book of Acts. And when Paul arrives home, after his third missionary journey in Acts 21, around 57 AD, Paul's not done. And he really sets his eyes. He kinda, he's got one city in, the, in his crosshairs. There's one city that he desperately desires to go to in which he has never been, and that is the city of Rome. And so we've been traveling with him the last few months and his long journey to get to Rome. And this journey of Paul's took on, to Rome took on new meaning for me a few weeks ago when I stood in Rome at the Mamertine prison where Paul was imprisoned by the Roman Empire and spent the last days of his life. When I was asked to do a destination wedding in Italy, first of all, I said yes. <laughs> but then, secondly, I knew this was probably not going to be something that came along every six months. So my wife and myself and our baby Caleb, we headed over to Italy, and once the wedding was over, we decided to stay in the country and travel a little bit and see some different sights. And Victoria really had a number of different things she was interested in and ideas of what she wanted to do and places she wanted to go, but I was like the Apostle Paul. I had one city on my mind, and that was Rome. And I had one place that I desired to go above all else, and that was the Mamertine prison where the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul spent their last days before being martyred. So we arrived in Rome on a Thursday. This was the last stop of our trip. And we went to the hotel, which was near the prison. We drop our bags off. It's like 4 or 5 p.m. I look over at Victoria. She looks exhausted. I look at my baby Caleb. He's tired, fussy, smells like a bad horror movie or something. (laughs) But frankly, I don't care. It's go time. We're in Rome. So I look at Victoria and I say, sweetie, let's get the passy, get Caleb. We're going to prison, okay? (laughs) So we load up and we head out and we walk by the Colosseum, which it's right next to. And then, of course, he walked by this massive field of ancient ruins known as the Roman Forum And then you come to the prison. And as we're walking up the hill to the prison, I'm thinking two thoughts to myself. Number one, this is going to be amazing. And number two, this is really going to be a great sermon illustration. All right? This is going to be fantastic. So we arrive here at the prison, the Maritime Prison, right there. Like I said, right next to the the Roman Forum. And there's one shot from the front. And then you see... Side shot there, and the form of the Colosseum's kind of over uh, to the left past those, pine, past those trees. Now, what you notice in these pictures, though, is none of the pictures are coming from inside. <laughs> because I arrived at the prison, and to my utter dismay, it was locked and closed. And I was like, no, no, no. And so a guy comes out of the prison. He's clearly an employee. And I say, hey, hey, why is it closed? The internet says that it should be open until 6 p.m. I double-checked, like, many times. To which this young man replied, yeah, I wish they would change that. <laughs> what? yeah, I wish they would change that. Uh, the hours are wrong on the internet. Can you believe it? I'm like no, I can't. <laughs> and he goes, but don't worry, we're closed today and we're closed tomorrow, but we open back up 9 a.m. on Saturday. And I was like, well, that's great because that's when my flight leaves. <laughs> so great timing. So upon hearing this news, I kind of responded in a way that I'm not proud of. Uh, I pulled out my wallet. Maybe I can bribe this guy. (laughs) Unfortunately, I had 30 euros, which doesn't really move the needle much in Italy. So I sit down on the steps next to the prison, like totally dejected, literal tears in my eyes. Victoria is looking at me like, are you crazy? (laughs) And then it hits me and I realize that I am locked out of the prison that the apostle Paul was locked in. And yet Paul used his time being locked in the prison to write the scriptures and evangelize the lost. And I was using my time locked outside the prison trying to illegally bribe an Italian teenager (laughs) and pout about a free Italian vacation. And so at that point, I kind of humbled myself and I looked at Tori and I said, well, babe, I think I got my sermon illustration. It's just not the one I had expected nor the one that I had wanted And as we open up our Bibles this morning, what we're going to get to see, which is really exciting, is that Paul is finally going to arrive at a place that he's been expecting to go and that he has wanted to go for so long. He's going to make it to Rome. And he's not going to spend his time pouting in the steps of the prison, but ministering in a way that changes the world forever. So if you'll please turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 28, the last chapter, Uh, in Acts, and I'll be reading out of the NASB translation. Now, as you turn there, where we left off last week was with the Apostle Paul and 240-some-odd men who had just been shipwrecked on the island of Malta. So Paul is traveling with a ship. He's going to Rome where he's going to stand before Caesar in trial. But along the way, they have this shipwreck. And they land in an island 60 miles south of Sicily. And they arrive at Malta obviously not knowing what to expect. I mean, they're shipwrecked. But what they find there is a pleasant surprise. Verse 2 says, The natives, the people there at Malta, showed us extraordinary kindness. For because of the rain had set in, because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. So they get shipwrecked on this little random island. And what they find there is what we would describe as some good old-fashioned southern hospitality. They got a fire going. They probably got a little fish cooking. Some Bill Miller tea being passed around. I mean, they're, they're taking care of them. And, and they're thrilled by it. And so Paul decides, I'm going to start helping out. So he starts gathering sticks and throwing them in the fire. And gathering sticks and throwing them in the fire. When all of a sudden he is attacked The text tells us he is attacked by a viper, a poisonous snake, and it latches on to his hand. And Paul has to kind of pry it off his hand, and then he throws it into the fire. And the natives see this, and they are understandably a little bit freaked out by the whole thing. And they come to a pretty simple conclusion, because their understanding is bad things happen to bad people. This is Talionic justice. This is bad karma. So Paul clearly was some kind of murderer. Clearly Paul had this coming, and now he's getting what he deserved. And so they're just watching him, just on pins and needles, waiting for his hand to swell, probably for him to keel over and die. But then an amazing thing happens, which is that nothing happens. Nothing. Nothing. He just keeps on going about his business, ministering, working, completely unfazed. It's actually a great scene. They're just, what's going to happen? And he basically looks over at them and is like, hey, boys, how do you like your fish cooked? You know? I mean, they, they're just blown away. And so then they go from thinking that he is a murderer to thinking that he is a god. And we see that in verse 6. It says, but they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a God. And so because of this, they take him to the Roman governor of Malta, which is a guy named Publius. And Publius then takes Paul to his sick father. And Paul heals Publius' father by the power of the Spirit. Word gets out. And then many people from Malta come to Paul. And he spends the next three months they're on Malta ministering and having this amazing healing ministry. And it's an, it's an amazing time in Malta. And Luke tells us as they leave in verse 10, this is what Luke says. It says, They, the Maltans, also honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. So Paul blesses them, and they say, Let us bless you. And then they send them on their way to Rome. And they have a few more pit stops they go to putioli and then they verse 14 says there we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for 7 days and thus we came to rome and paul finally arrives in rome and when he arrives in rome what he sees is the grandest city the world had ever seen just breathtaking i'm sure The architecture, the power, the sophistication, the wealth, unlike in any city that the world had seen. I mean, we saw it a few weeks ago as you walk through the Roman Forum and you're just trying to mentally comprehend what this looked like. It's just overwhelming. And not only was Rome incredibly powerful, it was the largest city. Some historians think that Rome at this time had a population roughly the size of modern day San Antonio. And as part of that population, there was a large contingent of Jews. And so when Paul arrives, he says, I want to talk to the leaders. I want to meet with the Jewish leaders. This is Paul's custom. He can't go to the synagogue because he's in house arrest. And so this is what happens. And verse 16 says, When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. Now just to clear a little of this up, Paul is imprisoned in Rome twice. So this is his first imprisonment from about 60 to 62 AD. And this is going to be a pretty laid-back imprisonment. It's it's, it's essentially house arrest. He's going to have a guard, but he has his own place. People can come and see him. He can meet with people. He lives a pretty relatively decent existence. He's going to get out. He's going to minister more, ultimately going to Spain, we think. And then 64 AD is when Nero really starts the persecutions of the Christians In the Roman Empire, Paul will be imprisoned again, this time in the place that I showed you. And that's where he'll spend the last days of his life before being martyred roughly around 67 AD. And so, verse 17 says, After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people... ...or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me, because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. So Paul gathers these leaders together, and what he does is is he basically takes chapters 22 through 27... Well, we've been going through the last couple of months and the events in Jerusalem and Caesarea and he puts in about one paragraph saying this is why I'm here. This is what happened to me. And then what's fascinating is what he says in verse 20. Powerful verse. This is what Paul says. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope ...of Israel. Paul says, I am here for you. I am in chains for you. It's Paul's message. Now Paul is often described as the apostle to the Gentiles. He's the apostle that God uniquely used to take the gospel to the non-Jew, the Gentile. But make no mistake, Paul loved and was committed... To his Jewish brothers and sisters. And he longed that they would come to a knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the things that I actually find just staggering about Paul and about his life and his ministry is the lack of bitterness he has, the lack of bitterness he has towards the Jews. Think about it, he has spent the last two decades of his life ministering to the gospel and and, and, and in town after town and in city after city and in synagogue after synagogue, the greatest opposition that he has received has come from the Jews. They have arrested him, they have falsely accused him, they have beaten him, they have denounced him as a traitor and a sellout. And yet, instead of becoming bitter beyond belief, he continues to minister in hopes that they will repent of their unbelief. It's amazing. And while this display of grace and forgiveness is remarkable, it is by no means isolated to the Apostle Paul. This is the call on all of our lives as followers of Christ. The call on all of us is to live lives free of bitterness and full of forgiveness. As we imitate the one who hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. The one who told the story of the prodigal son who had so disgraced the father, and yet the father in his great love and his great mercy ran after the son and wrapped his arms around him. The same Savior who when asked, how often should I forgive my brother? said, 70 times 7. Keep on forgiving. Keep on forgiving. The great C.S. Lewis once wrote, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Being a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And the reality... Is that bitterness has no place in the life of the Christian? It has no place. It is antithetical to the teachings of Jesus. It's antithetical to the life of Jesus. And it has no business being present amongst the people who follow Jesus. And yet, how often, how often does bitterness drive our actions and govern our emotions? Even at times without us even knowing it. And the reality, because life is hard. Life is hard. And it's filled with heartbreak and oftentimes regret and, and moments where we were deeply wounded by others. And our natural response in the flesh is bitterness. It's bitterness. But bitterness is not acceptable to God. It poisons the soul, it robs us of our joy, it grieves his spirit, and it must be dealt with like a cancer that does not belong. Paul had been treated horribly by his people, but he had been dealt with kindly by his God. And thus he was able to respond to them with a heart that was for them instead of a bitterness that was towards them in the midst of it all. And that's how we are called to respond as well. And it is difficult. But that is the Christian, that is the Spirit-led life. That is what Christ did for us. And after giving these Jews now a, a rundown of how He arrived, He hears them give a kind of a peculiar response, starting in verse 21. It says, They said to Him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. So basically, they they look at Paul and they say, Paul, we really haven't heard what's been going on. We didn't know about this in Jerusalem and Caesarea. And, and, and Paul, we've heard some about this sect, this Christian deal. And Paul, frankly, what we've heard is that it's pretty bad. It's a nuisance. It's no good. But we want to hear your take. What, would you share with us a little bit about your thoughts on Christians? And Paul clearly seizes this opening, right? Right? In verse 23, it says, When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. So Paul hosts them at his house. It's a large group Bible study, BSF style. And he says, all right, guys, open up your Hebrew scriptures. They open him up, and he says, hey, Tommy. No, there probably was not a Tommy there, okay? <laughs> Think of a good Jewish name. Tommy, you got Isaiah 53. Hey, Billy, you got Psalm 22. Sally, why don't you take Micah 5. Harry, you get Zechariah 12. And they go on, and the list goes on and on and on. And Paul's point is all these prophe- all these passages are prophecies that speak to the coming Messiah, and they're all prophecies fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Don't you see it, guys? Don't you see it? He's just jumping off the page at you. Open your eyes. And that's really Paul's message to them. Last Sunday night, uh, I had the fortune of attending a uh, fundraiser uh, hosted by a couple in our church, Arlene and Noemi Francis, for a ministry that we partner with as a church, that we financially partner with called One for Israel. Many of you were there. It's a phenomenal ministry doing incredible work. It's based out of Israel. I encourage you to check their website out, oneforisrael.com. But it's a pretty remarkable, remarkable ministry. And as part of the evening, one of the presentations was a video testimony by the president and the founder of the ministry, a guy named Dr. Erez Soref who has actually preached from here before. He's preached at Wayside. And Dr. Soreff gave his testimony of of growing up in Israel as an Orthodox Jew and vacationing many times at the Sea of Galilee and yet never once hearing the gospel. Never once. Even though he had grown up his whole life in Israel. And then finally as a young man... He's traveling around Europe and he's in Amsterdam. And he bumps into a group of evangelical Christians in Amsterdam. And they start talking to him about Jesus and how he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. And they show him prophecies from the Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament. And he looks at those. He's like, huh. And he takes their Bible and he goes home and he compares their Bible to his Hebrew Scriptures. And he's like... Well, gosh, dog. Probably didn't say gosh, dog also, but hey, they're, the, they're there. It's the same, same deal. And he's so curious about this, he then goes and buys a Hebrew New Testament. And, as he, and he, as he reads it from cover to cover, he reads about places that he had been as a kid. Many times that he'd walked around places where Jesus had ministered. And he's so blown away by this, and God works on his heart. And ultimately, he comes to faith as in the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel. And he eventually comes to the States to get theologically trained because there's no seminary or Bible college in Israel to teach him. So he comes to the States, he goes through his training, he gets his doctorate, and God puts on his heart to go back to Israel, back to his people, to tell them about the greatest secret in all of Israel. Jesus, remarkable. And this is how the Israel College of the Bible and one for Israel was birthed as a ministry. And they're just seeing incredible fruit. And it all started because a young bunch of believers in Amsterdam, of all places, Amsterdam, bumped into a young Jewish man and told him about his Jewish Messiah prophesied in the ancient Jewish scriptures. It's marvelous. And this is what Paul's trying to do here. He's trying to say, it's right there. And while Eris was given eyes to see and ears to hear, the people that Paul's with when exposed to the gospel, they are not as fortunate. And Paul then, he, he, quotes, a ver- he quotes a passage from the book of Isaiah in verses 24 through 27. And Isaiah was a, a prophet who had lived many years previous and ministered in Israel in a time where there was great sin and great unbelief. And so Paul basically takes that passage and he says, guys, this is the same as you. You are the same as the Jews who were living in the days of Isaiah. And his judgment reaches its climax in verse 28 where Paul says, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, they will also listen. They will listen. And the truth of that statement is really evidenced by our gathering here this morning where almost the entire body of people here are Gentile. are non-Jews. The Gentiles did listen. The Gentiles are still listening. And then that begs the question, well, what about the Jews? Has God forsaken the Jews? Has God turned His back on the Jews? Has God said, hey Jews, sorry you had your chance, but I'm moving on to a new thing. And many theologians and pastors and seminaries and scholars teach that yes, God has moved on. I I say no. No. I say no. And there's a number of places we could go to why I say that, but I just want to bring us to one, a section of Scripture actually written by the Apostle Paul and ironically actually written to the church in Rome, a predominantly Gentile church. And this passage is really three chapters. It's in chapters 9 through 11 in the book of Romans. And Paul really kind of deals with this question of the Jews in those chapters. And here's the question he's basically trying to answer, so follow me. Paul's got incredible logic. He's got incredible logic and he always anticipates objections. And so he's talked about the sovereignty of God, the eternal security that God gives, so on and so forth. And then he and then he anticipates the question of, "Well, what about the Jews?" Because if God is sovereign, which he is, and if God is faithful and he keeps his promises, and he made special promises to the Jews that have not been fulfilled. Then what gives Paul? Because either he's not as powerful as you think, he's not as faithful and a promise keeper as you think, or he's just kind of turned his back on the Jews. And so Paul deals with this. And in Romans chapter 11, primarily, there in verses 11 and 12, this is what Paul writes. He says, I say then, speaking of the Jews here, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. He says, their rejection is not permanent, is it? No. And then he goes on. He says, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? It doesn't sound like he's done with them. And then in case we didn't get that, later on in chapter 11, starting in verse 25, Paul writes, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. In other words, Paul says, the Jewish rejection is part of God's overall mysterious sovereign plan. Because what it did is it allowed God in His perfect wisdom to uniquely minister to the Gentiles during this partial hardening. And yet, this is not a final deal. God has not forsaken the Jews because the calling of God are irre- is irrevocable. And Jesus promises as much in Matthew 23, 39 as He looks down at Jerusalem and He says, They will not see Me again. They will see Me when they say, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. He's speaking to Jerusalem. So God is not done with the Jews. And, and Paul is so blown away by this. That he, re- he reflects on it at the, ends of Romans, at the end of Romans 11 and he's just overwhelmed. And he just responds with praise. And he says in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable are his ways. Paul just goes, wow. Wow. Unbelievable, God. You're so much bigger. You're so much better. You're so much grander than I possibly could have thought. You brought the Gentiles in. You're not forsaking the Jews. You're going to do what you said. Praise God. And that's how Romans 11 ends. It's magnificent. It's just magnificent. And it brings us to the end of the book of Acts, the last two verses. And in doing so, it brings us to a strange and kind of triumphant conclusion. Not the one you'd probably anticipate. This is what the last two verses of the book of Acts say and he paul stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him preaching the kingdom of god and teaching concerning the lord jesus christ with all openness unhindered boom the end now we may read that at first glance and go whoa what happened to paul but what luke's doing where when we reflect on it it's so phenomenal It's phenomenal. As Luke's saying that what's more important is where the gospel has gone, it's being preached unhindered in Rome within 30 years of the resurrection. Amen to that. And so what it reminds us is the book of Acts was never about Paul. The book of Acts was never about Peter. The book of Acts was God establishing establishing his church through the work of the Spirit, through, by the power of the Spirit, through the work of the Son, to the glory of the Father. And we get to play a role in that, but it's not about us. It's not about Paul. It's not about Peter. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. It is about God. As His church goes forth to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, even Rome. Even Rome. Now, before we leave this morning, I do want to give just a few kind of takeaways or reflections on the book of Acts. Because we've spent 46 Sundays on this. There's been a lot. So what are kind of some big ideas as we leave this morning, as we think about this past year? And and the first takeaway I want to give us is this. Is to know the story of God. Know the story. Knowing the past doesn't just inform us of how we got here. It teaches us about who we are. Acts is the story of the birth of the church. Therefore, it is part and intimately part of our story. We are connected to these events. We are connected to these people. And, and knowing the story connects us to our past and motivates us towards our future. My favorite movie in middle school was uh, the movie Rudy. And I'm not, not shocking for those of y'all who are, know that movie. And I remember when I saw it in the theaters, and I cried like a baby in front of a plethora of middle school girls. <laughs> but I didn't care. I loved it. If you've never seen Rudy, it's a movie that portrays a guy by the name Rudy Rudiger, whose desire in life was to play football for Notre Dame. But unfortunately, God gave him a really small, scrawny body. But Rudy set his sights on that. And he persevered, and he ultimately achieved his dream in dramatic fashion. And there's a scene in Rudy that I'm going to show here in a second. I don't know why y'all are laughing. <laughs> and what, it, what this scene we're going to watch does is it captures the impact of knowing your story. But even bigger than that, it captures the impact of knowing the bigger story. Knowing about those who've gone before you and the importance of understanding that you are a part of something so much bigger than just yourself so here it is um, i'm living with a friend in town where in town fortunately i haven't really found a place to stay yet Funds pretty low huh All well, my savings went for tuition i shower over at holy cross i'm getting by all right mm-hmm. so this is it huh yeah this is where it all starts and finishes gotta go rock it's all right i'm not afraid sometime rock when the team's up against it and things are wrong and the brakes are beating the boys tell them to go in there with all they've got and win just one for the gipper i don't know where i'll be then rock but i'll know about it and i'll be happy Four horsemen: Knut Rockney, Moose Krause, Angelo Bertelli, Johnny Lujack, Leon Hart, Terry Hanretty, John Hewitt, Jack Snow, John Latner. Paul Harding could have dressed in this locker. We got work to do, kid. inside we're gonna go outside inside and outside we're gonna get him on the run boys and once we get him on the run we're gonna keep him on the run and then we're gonna go 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 and we're not gonna stop until we get across that goal line this is a team they say is good well i think we're better than them they can't lick us what do you say man recited that a few times in my bedroom (laughs) as a teenager. But uh, notice he knew the players who had gone before him. He knew the victories, the defeats. He knew the stories. He knew the speeches. He knew what made that room special. And he was intimately connected to them. And it meant so much to him. It upped his commitment. It upped his conviction, his passion, and ultimately his perseverance to get through the tough times. This is our story. This is the story of God. And we are to know the story. Know the story. The second takeaway is to trust in the sovereignty of God. How many times in the book of Acts did God's providential hand show up? Whereas one way to put it is the the people in the boat didn't know what was going to happen, but they did know who controlled the winds and the waves. God is sovereign. God is in control. And just as important, God is good. He's good. And those two things can never be reduced. He is sovereign and he is good and there is a mystery to some of the evils of this world that is beyond us. But he is in control. He is good and he is trustworthy. He's trustworthy. And while the winds of life may blow us places where that truth gets cloudy, we look to the cross like a like a north star. We look to the cross as the lighthouse And our understanding of who God is. His love and his character. We don't know what the future holds. But we know who holds the future. And Acts reminds us of that time and time again. Even think about our passage this morning. Paul's in Rome. He's in house arrest. He can't leave. Oh no, what will God do? This is really bad. Except that Paul is able to receive people, minister. And now he's got some time to write as well. And from this first prison, this first imprisonment in Rome, he writes some of the greatest writings that have ever been penned in the history of the world. He writes the book of Philippians. He writes the book of Philemon. He writes the book of Colossians. And he writes the book that we'll be starting next week as a church. He wrote the book of Ephesians from the Roman prison. God was behind the scenes moving the chess pieces. Causing all things to work together for His glorious plan. He is sovereign and we can trust in Him. So we are to know the story of God. We are to trust in the sovereignty of God. Thirdly, we are to walk by the Spirit of God. We are to live by the Spirit. Time and time again, the book of Acts displays the power of the Holy Spirit. And how it ministers to us and empowers us to live out the Christian life. I love Prof. Hendricks, the the famous professor at Dallas Seminary, how he defines the Christian life. He says it can be defined as the life of Christ reproduced in the believer by the power of the Holy Spirit in obedient response to the Word of God. Isn't that wonderful? The life of Christ reproduced in the believer by the power of the Holy Spirit in obedient response to the Word of God. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is not one of emotion as much as it is one of formation. As it forms and it conforms us to the image of the Son, as it empowers us to live out a life that is pleasing to God, and as it seals us and indwells us and says, here's a down payment and I'm going to bring you home. You're secure with God. So we are to know the story of God, trust in the sovereignty of God, live by the Spirit of God, and finally witness to the Son of God. You see, the book of Acts is is a book about journeys, but even more than that, it's a book that tells us about the mission of the church. Jesus' words all the way back in Acts chapter 1, November 2015, Jesus has been resurrected. He's about to be ascended on high, and he calls his disciples together, and here's what he says. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And thus began the great relay of faith. And the baton of faith has been passed on from generation to generation to generation to generation. The same truths, the same gospel, and the same mission. Go therefore and make disciples. Be my witnesses near and far. And we carry this baton with us wherever we go until we go to be with him or until he comes back to be with us. We are to know the story of God, trust, trust in the sovereignty of God. We are to live by the Spirit of God, and we are to spend our life in witnesses to the Son of God. And that is the book of Acts. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father God, you are so faithful. You are so good. Guys, we've spent this last year going through this book. I've just been overwhelmed with your goodness and your faithfulness and your sovereignty and your wisdom and your plan for all humanity and redemption. And it's just marvelous. And God, when we really stop and think about it, what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do is just mind blowing. God, we stand before you as creatures who have sinned against a holy God. We have rebelled against our Creator and you had every right to cast us aside. But in your great grace and great mercy and great love, you chose to enter in and to not leave us where we were at. And you took on flesh as the God-man, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. You lived a perfect life in our place. Willingly going to the cross where you died for the sin of the world. My sin. And you took it upon yourself. And then you were buried. But you're not just a good teacher. You're not just a moral guy. You were not just some religious leader. You were the God-man and you rose from the dead. And in doing so, you show that you had conquered sin. You show that you really are who you said you were. The Son of God. And God, you call us into relationship with yourself. By the power of the Spirit, through the work of the Son, to the praise of the Father. And you say, believe. And God, you say to all those who will receive you. Receive that free gift of salvation through your work on the cross, God, that we will be saved. And not just saved and put in some waiting room for eternity, but that you will transform us from the inside out right now through the power of your spirit. And we can live that life right now. God, you are beautiful. Thank you. God, would you move in us in a mighty way? Would you help us know our story? Would you help us trust in you even when we don't understand? Even when it just doesn't make sense? God, would you help us live out this life by the power of the Spirit, not the flesh, which cannot do what we are called to do, but your Spirit can. Would we allow you to work in and through us? And God, would we be bold and open and witness near and far? about the mighty work of the Son of God. And it's in His mighty name that we pray. Amen.